From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Showing for Christmas Eve, December 4th, 2019. Happy holidays, Sean. Happy holidays to you too, Jeremy. This is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. We welcome you in to recap professional golf and preview the college football playoff and a bunch of other stuff with Sean Davison uh, down there in Florida. Um, welcome back, first of all. Second of all, congratulations to Craig and Jackie, your wedding, um, which was an amazing weekend for one of my best friends in the whole wide world. Uh, led to this podcast being a broader podcast, not a President's Cup-focused podcast, because yours truly was on a dance floor during Sunday singles and not watching the, the President's Cup. However, you've probably watched and or read enough about it. I've watched enough and or read about it to know this. This came down to the U.S. doing exactly what they needed to do early on Sunday singles. And what has been the one consistency on any team competition, Sean, singles over the years? You have to get off to a fast start. You have to get red or blue or whatever your color is up on that board. And the U.S. was effectively able to get American flags up on that board early. And it really became an insurmountable um, margin for the internationals. Uh, they could have tied it, but their chances of winning really diminished after the way the U.S. started those first five matches. You're absolutely right. Getting off to that fast start, setting a good tone early is key to success in those singles formats. And by and large, the United States has been able to figure that out, even though recently in the President's Cup, it had actually been the international team with a bit of an edge in uh, Sunday singles. Unfortunately for them, a lot of these President's Cups have been by and large, over by the time the singles start. Um, this case, you know, if you want to talk about setting a tone, I think my biggest takeaway was, aside from the guy he played in Sunday singles and maybe Justin Thomas, of all the guys that were teeing it up in Australia, and this is a carryover from playing in Asia, the guy that looked like he was playing the best golf out of anybody there was Tiger Woods. Yeah. Nick Phelps went out first. Um, short game looked great. He was finding fairways. He was striking the ball well. He was putting well. I mean, the guy just looked like he was starting to string together weeks at the end of the year the way we all kind of thought he might string together weeks after he won at Augusta and then just wasn't able to sustain that during the PGA Tour season. So for me, yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, I was glad to see the United States get off to a strong start. I was glad to see Tiger pick himself first uh, to set that tone. A, it allowed him to do that. B, it showed me how confident he was, and C, it allowed him to finish his match and get out and be the captain once his match was over with a bunch of matches still left on the course. Um, so I thought that was a smart decision in every respect, and he stacked his lineup well um, right behind him. It was a really intriguing President's Cup, uh, and you have to take your caps off to the internationals, picking up 10 points off team formats from a really good United States team. I get Brooks Koepka wasn't playing. I get there were question marks as to how... Uh, healthy Dustin Johnson was. I know Bryson DeChambeau is still in the middle of his. Um, how did he put it? I know he's he's putting on weight. How did he say he was wanting to get? He said he wanted to. Um, he wanted to be like a gymnast, built like yeah, a gymnast. Yes, and then, uh, by the way, I don't think you're as active on Instagram as I am, but you might have seen this. He posted a shirtless picture of himself the other night. Did you see that? Oh no. Yes. Oh. Yes, um, he is clearly, and, and I'll just put it this way and end it. 
he has clearly accomplished his goal, but he says there's more work and more places to be done. He hit 192 and a half mile per hour ball speed yesterday while practicing in Texas. Um, I, I don't quite know what he's doing, but we'll get to that later. Um, but to, to your point about Tiger, here's somebody also who had the mental wherewithal to realize, guys, I'm not ready for day three. I can't. There's no way I can warm up and get my, my myself less stiff. I'm not up to it. I trust my teammates, and I'm just going to sit this thing out. And what looked like, what the heck are you doing, turned into genius. Been the big change uh, in general for Tiger, I think, over the past few years since he's come back from his back fusion surgery, is knowing when he's not 100% being honest about it, being straightforward about it, and if you're not ready to go, don't go. We've seen that in stroke play events. Bay Hill. Immediately after uh, the back surgery, he always plays Bay Hill, did not play Bay Hill because he was not ready. Um, you know, you can just go through it and you can see where he's just been very straightforward. Did he not withdraw from an event either this year or this past year? Northern uh, Trust. Yep. Northern Trust. Liberty National. Yep. Because he just did not feel like he was ready or physically able to play golf without hurting himself. So it's just been a trend now where instead of the guy who was pushing himself and pushing himself and pushing himself beyond where he needed to be, um, and re-injuring himself and having an absurd number of knee surgeries and ankle surgeries and back surgeries. He's really took it to heart that at 40-plus years of age, this very well could be your last shot. Nota Begay has said that plenty of times. His close friend and, of course, Golf Channel analyst has said that plenty of times on things like Golf Central and, and some of the network broadcasts that Tiger has an understanding that he needs to really take care of himself this time because there very well might not be a next if he re-injures something. So you're seeing that now. And I really appreciate from somebody who grew up watching, idolizing, and loving this guy, I appreciate the fact that for himself, for his family, for his fans, for the game of golf in general, he's doing it right this time. And if that means pulling yourself out of team format on day three of the President's Cup because whether it be your back or your knee or something else just doesn't feel right, um, you know what, he had the maturity, I think is the right word, and the, I don't know, inner strength to, as a competitor, say, you know what, you're not ready, just be a captain today. And he did. And it was a big day for the United States to sort of trim into what was a four-point deficit, cut it down to two. Um, and then, of course, it set the stage for Tiger to lead things off on Sunday, pick up that huge point off. The guy who I thought was by far and away the best player for the internationals all week, and Abraham Answer, I think he will have a big 2020. Um, totally, and really set the tone in singles for uh, the American side. The American side went three zero and zero, and I, I just, to me, it showed that this guy has the right temperament, the right balance, and the right maturity, uh, and the right competitiveness, not just to serve himself well, but. Moving forward, you would expect that at some point he'll be a Ryder Cup captain. Um, you know, he's just got the right mentality. And, you know, team format's a whole lot different than single format when you're out there in the Masters or you're out there in a stroke play event. And uh, I saw a lot out of Tiger intangibly this week that really just expanded my view of him as a golfer, as a person, as a competitor, 
uh, and as a man, I thought it was really impressive. Totally. Um, so many things that, that you brought up there, which I want to continue on. Number one, Tiger did something really important, which is he took the Hero World Challenge seriously and played fantastic golf down there. It was consistent. He made nothing, absolutely nothing, or else he would have won the damn thing. But the consistent golf that he played round after round after round at the Hero translated when they got to Australia, number one. Number two, this was Abraham Anter's coming out party, and there is no doubt that this is somebody, along with Sun J.M., who I think is going to win multiple times in 2020 and is set up that way and can use this as a, as a springboard. Number three, I go back to the alternate shot on, on Friday over there, Thursday over here, and, and Justin Thomas and that putt. Love me. I love me some me. Quoting Terrell Owens, that whole thing, just getting that point, or I, I think it was even a half point, was just monumental. And number four, Patrick Cantlay and Xander Shoffley. I've never been more wrong about somebody on this show than I was about Xander Shoffley. These two guys have some moxie, some inner tenacity. You've got two future major winners there, I believe. And you've got a pairing in these team events in Shoffley and Cantlay. And Steve Stricker said he was paying attention, both as the acting captain and as the, the assistant captain, um, that... This is a pairing, I think, that can do some stuff going forward and be really effective. You know, I want to go back to the point that you made about Shoffley and, and Cantlay. Um, first of all, you continue to beat yourself up about the whole Shoffley thing. This is, I think, the third or fourth time you've mentioned just while we've both been on the air together. Because I eviscerated him after he won the Tour Championship and called him a fluke, and I feel so bad about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I understand that. But I, I actually want to go to, to Cantlay for a second. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who doubted at any point that this kid was capable of doing what he's doing now. Yep. It was just a circuitous route. Uh, back injury, uh, had his friends killed right in front of him in a hit-and-run out in California. I mean, he's had to deal with a lot that has sort of delayed his progress. I think a lot of people forget that while he was still an amateur, he shot 60 at Travelers and was in the final group on Sunday. And went sub-30 on one of those nines and is still, I believe, the lowest nine-hole score as an amateur ever and the lowest 18 as an amateur on the PGA Tour. Yeah, I mean, it, we saw very early um, that Patrick Cantlay had what it took as an amateur to play really well on a consistent basis on the PGA Tour. And, you know, when he reemerged at Valspar a few years ago, um, and, and made the most of his opportunity, a la Jordan Spieth, who used the Valspar when he was still trying to cement his status on the PGA Tour, yeah. um, and Cantlay ended up finishing second, I thought, well, this might just be the thing that, that sort of turns this around for him, that allows him to, to gain that traction. And sure enough, he's won a few times since and, and has done exactly that. But the point that I want to make is that he's done it with this even-keeled, almost stone-faced demeanor that finally we saw come down uh, in the President's Cup. And it was great to see Patrick Cantlay fist-pumping with emphasis, fired up, yelling, high-fiving, having some fun, even breaking out a smile or two. Uh, you know, we've seen this format 
uh, and, and just the, the type of, not just the match play format, but the team event style of golf, the U.S. against the internationals, or the U.S. against Europe, really take guys into a different light. You know, back before Patrick Reed was Captain America, he was the guy that a lot of people stopped at for saying he was the top five player in the world because he won at Doral and he won the Bob Hope and, and all that. And then he goes out there and he plays like an all-star in Glen Eagles and comes back Captain America. So, I mean, this type of event really has the opportunity to take a young player and turn him into something even better than what he was going in. And I think that's what we saw happen to Patrick Cantlay. I think that's the same exact thing that we saw with Xander Shoffley because he's been knocking on the door and he's been playing better and better every year. Uh, but for me, I thought the biggest difference in terms of the intangibles, in terms of the personality, in terms of just embracing the format and what it meant and getting fired up and riding the wave, um, I was really pleased to see that out of Patrick Cantlay, and I cannot wait to see what that sets him up for moving forward because he's got a world of potential. Um, you know, the other thing about Cantlay, too, is think about his wins now. He's won a President's Cup. His first win came in Vegas. Not that that's something that a lot of people point to, but remember he hit that great shot through the tree in either the playoff or regulation on 18 to pull it off, which shows that he he trusted himself in his game to be able to do that. And then he wins at, um, at Jack's Place at Muirfield Village. And if you win the Memorial, you've done something right because you get to shake his hand at the end. So... This is three really impressive wins for Patrick Cantlay and a springboard, I believe, to great things going forward. It has the game and the consistency to compete at um, Augusta National, which he did earlier this year. Um, so I think that could be the spot for him. By the way, uh, th th that was my dad who knocked over some stuff before, uh, which was that loud sound you may have heard in the background. That basically... Um, Explains his thoughts on the President's Cup. He was not interested in, in, in the competition. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking to Sean Davison here on Teeing It Up about golf and then college football. Two things that uh, basically come come together in, in Justin Thomas's mind, but Alabama was not one of those uh, who will be participating in the semis on Saturday. Final thing on golf. What's going to stick with you in uh, from 2019 in golf? You know, there's a lot of different things that you could pick, but I think the one iconic moment, the one thing that, that will stick with me forever. And it was it's ironic that you asked that question because I was just watching video of it um, last night because I don't know why, I just felt like I had to. <laughs> was the final putt and that final scene at 18 at Augusta. I, I, just, that I watch that all the time. Yeah. I didn't think it was going to happen. Um, nobody thought. I don't even know that Tiger thought that moment would ever happen again. And uh, the way the crowd erupted, the extended celebration, the hug with his kids, with his mom, with his girlfriend, uh, with his aunt, you know, the line of tour players there to congratulate him, which might not have been the case, you know, years ago. And uh, somebody having the idea, I forget which one of that group, but somebody had the idea for all the winners to go grab their green jackets and come out wearing them, which I thought was an awesome touch and I hope becomes some kind of annual tradition going forward. Oh, exactly. And the fans lining him, high-fiving. He was reciprocating. I mean, everything about, I believe it was four minutes and four seconds from the time yep. he tapped it to the time he walked into the, into the scoring area. 
and uh, it was four four minutes and four seconds of absolute magic, and um, it, and it really was. It, I would even say probably the scene in sports um, from 2019, not just in golf, uh, because again we've said it plenty of times. You can say he moves the needle, but Tiger Woods is the needle, and it's not just in golf. He's one of those people that moves the needle in the entire world of sport, unlike anybody else we have ever seen before, and frankly, unlike probably anybody else we will see moving forward. Um, so to see that moment again, as a kid that grew up watching him, as somebody who still loves to watch him, um, and as somebody who at some point in the future will be able to tell his kids that that's what he saw, um, it, it really is something that will stick with me forever. Uh, remember, that moment doesn't happen if Sam doesn't lose a state soccer semifinal game. True. And it's one of those things in life that that I think she'll look back on, and I and I know because of his New Year's resolution, Charlie will look back on and be like, thank you, Sam, for losing that game. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that means... By the way, not only did Sam lose that game, but Jack Nicholas's granddaughter lost that game. And I think Jack's thankful also that she lost that game. Um, for as much as, as, as Jack has enjoyed watching Tiger and, and Sam and, and uh, Stephen's daughter, Stephen Nicholas's daughter, are teammates on that team. Um, there's, there's, there's some very thankful people who lost that game. And then there's whoever won that state title who is also very happy. Because they're state champions and can say forever, I was a, high, a, a middle school state, state champion. So there were a lot of winners on Saturday and Sunday at Augusta. There were. Let me, yeah, and let me also just say, because I think you made a really interesting point there. Um, I think the game of golf is a huge winner, and not just because of the obvious of what happened there, but I love that you mentioned how um, closely and how much Jack Nicklaus enjoys watching Tiger Woods. And I think this game is very fortunate that the man that is widely viewed as the best based on what his career has entailed, particularly in major championships, has that good of a relationship with the guy and probably the only guy. I should be careful saying that because I'm sure there was a day people didn't, see, didn't think they'd see anything like what Jack has done. Um, but I would say likely the only guy, especially the way the game of golf is diversifying and the quality of competition out there, I just don't see anybody that you know getting that far into the major column um anyway just seeing the relationship that jack has with tiger um which is not necessarily commonplace when you look across sports between one legend and the up-and-coming legend um and it's weird to even say tiger's up and coming but he'll be the first one to tell you he's got room to go uh before he catches jack um we all know it he knows it but that relationship is really cool. And, and, you know, Arnold Palmer, may he rest in peace, they had that same relationship, too. All the iconic hugs and high fives behind the 18th green at Bay Hill. The king and the bear and the relationship they have with the heir apparent in the modern day is something that I think this game has benefited immensely from. And it's been really cool to watch those relationships develop and to see the kind of genuine friendship that Tiger has been able to form with those guys who really allowed golf to become what it was when he took over, and now he's taken it to a whole new level. The other thing that I'll add, Sean, um, and and you said that so well, fantastic Twitter feed, fantastic Instagram feed. 
Highly recommend it for anybody out there. And I love that we all know that it's not Jack actually posting this stuff. But it's Jack's voice. It sounds like Jack. If you've listened to enough interviews, it comes off as Jack. That, to me, I hate celebrity Twitter and Instagram feeds that sound like they were said by their PR team. And it's like, you know, this this, this person would never use the term, like, I'm the present or something like that. And I, 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 I just butchered it myself. Omnipresent. Um, there's some of those PR statements. They're like, what the heck are you doing? His Twitter feed and his Instagram feed are authentic to who Jack Nicholas is. Who Jack Nicholas is, I don't know who in his camp runs it, but whoever does with Jack is just fantastic and does a great job. Now, there's one thing Jack loves. This is gonna be my transition, Sean. There's one thing Jack loves more than golf and more than his family. It's college football and it's the Ohio State Buckeyes who are coming in as the two seed in the college football playoffs. So we will start our conversation on college football. And since you follow it as a, as a Florida State guy, LSU Oklahoma and the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, the first semifinal, 4 p.m. Eastern time this Saturday on ESPN. Um, to me, Jalen Hurts has to play a perfect game here because you you know that, that Joe Burrow is going to go nuts. You know that this is a three-headed monster. Um in terms of what um, LSU can do. I don't know if this game is a shutout. Uh, sorry, it is a shootout. The over-under is 76, but the line is LSU 13 and a half. Um, and, and, and obviously you don't talk about the gambling, but it's cl- clearly Vegas thinks that this is going to be a sizable LSU win. It seems to me like Jalen Hurts has to have a perfect game to pull this off. But I think it's going to be way closer than people think. And I think it could be a really close game. And Joe Burrow is going to have to have a really close to perfect game. Well, I think you mentioned a lot of really interesting points. And I want to add one more. Just looking at the overall college football playoff. With this transfer portal system set up. And with kids being able to seek out opportunities uh, wherever they so choose. You've got three out of the four starting quarterbacks in the college football playoff that have all sought out the transfer portal. Joe Burrow from Ohio State to LSU. Justin Fields from Georgia to Ohio State. And then, of course, Jalen Hurts, uh, which most people would recognize more quickly, from Alabama to Oklahoma. Um, Now, going to that game specifically, there's some things that, that do stick out to me. Jalen Hurts being a mobile quarterback certainly helps the cause for Oklahoma. I'm a big fan of, especially in games like this, having a quarterback that can also hurt you with their legs. And he has been able to do that with regularity, even going back to his time at Alabama. It just gives LSU one more thing to look at. They are so sound offensively. That's where, as you mentioned, Jalen Hurts is going to have to show us his best stuff, running the football throwing the football accurately downfield, too. That's the thing. Going back to Alabama, he was very efficient, but a lot of his passes were check downs, underneath throws, quick slants, um, and then he would hit the wide-open tight end, the wide-open wide receiver, um, whenever it was there for him. You're going to have to create a couple of plays, two, three plays, something like that. Put a ball into a tight window more than 10 yards down the field if you're going to beat LSU, because what Joe Burrow and this LSU offense does is they nickel and dime you to death. 
they will hit you with those same underneath passes, those crossing patterns, over and over again. They will hammer it up the middle with Edward Pilaire. Uh, they will do everything they can. And then the next thing you know, something opens over the top, and Burrow is, of course, as we've seen time and time again this year, as the Heisman winner, accurate enough to hit those plays over the middle, um, and, and then they'll burn you that way. This is an LSU offense, especially, that is fine-tuned and can really hurt teams left and right, no pun intended. For Oklahoma to hang with them, you're going to have to take advantage of that LSU defense. I go back to the game that LSU played Florida in Baton Rouge. Um, Florida has been doing wonderful things under Dan Mullen. It hurts me to say it. But there isn't very much about that Florida offense that was necessarily explosive or exciting. They just sort of matched LSU toe for toe. Uh, step for step in their playmaking decisions, and, and I thought Kyle Trapps had a fantastic day. And it was a shootout in Baton Rouge and a Florida offense that really for the last few years hasn't really shown an ability to score like that was able to. So the plays are there if you can make them. So to your point, Jalen Hurts is going to be huge, and that Oklahoma defense, which has never looked better than it has this year under Alex Grinch, um, is also going to be huge. So Hurts and the OUD are going to be big for the Sooners. I just don't think they're going to be big enough. I take LSU. And now we move on to what I believe. Oh, and, and, and by the way, don't forget, too, that is the Chick fil A Peach Bowl. That's in Atlanta. This is, um, you know, the uh, folks from the college football playoff obviously played to the one seed and put them in the more geographically convenient bowl. This is. You know, besides Georgia, this is about as much of a home game as you could have for LSU, or or actually besides um, the uh, Sugar Bowl in in New Orleans itself. So clearly, there's a home field advantage issue, which Oklahoma's gonna have to come over. Um, uh, uh, sorry, we'll, we'll have to overcome as well. Now, PlayStation Fiesta Bowl, Ohio State Clemson. This game fascinates me. I think it's the it could be even better than the national title game. Um, that's why College Game Day is going there. That's why Chris Kirk, uh, Tom, and Maria Taylor are going there. It, to to me, this is this is this is the best semifinal. And 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 for my money, Sean, this comes down. We're talking to Sean Davison. This comes down to one thing: Has Clemson been tested enough? Because because Justin Fields and Ohio State have had to go through this brutal sequence of Penn State, Michigan, and Wisconsin to get to where they are as the two seed and to get to thirteen and zero. Clemson is thirteen and zero, having just you know just skirted right through. And look, Dabo Sweeney loves being the underdog and loves having this nobody you know gives us a a, a chance role and mindset. But I just wonder if down the stretch in the fourth quarter, can Trevor Lawrence and company make a play when they haven't had to make a play all year? And I know that that Lawrence is talented and J.K. Dobbins is talented. He's got a good core around him. But can the defense make a stand and can Trevor Lawrence make the smart throw in a tough spot? Whereas we know what we're getting with Ohio State and Justin Fields and Chase Young in that defense because we have seen it for the last month. So here's the thing. I, first of all, um, this game is the more interesting of the two to me, and that's saying something because I still think LSU-Oklahoma is very interesting. Um, I also want to brief aside, you mentioned the de facto home game for LSU. 
extra incentive as if there isn't enough to get to play for a national championship for the Tigers is that if they do uh, win that semifinal, the college football playoff national championship is also going to be in New Orleans. That's oh, yeah, that's right. The, uh, that's the site that also won the, uh, the selection this year. So they will have that de facto home game in the national championship if they do advance past Atlanta, where they should also have a throw LSU crowd. This sets up, in terms of crowd, to your point, extremely well for the Tigers. Um, now, to the other game. I cannot wait to see um, the Ohio State defense against Clemson. Uh, and I cannot wait to see how Clemson's defense, which frankly, despite the fact that they've lost so many playmakers from those couple of national championship teams and a semifinal team, you know, in the middle of that, the runner-up team the year before, I mean, they, they lost guys who had won a combined 55 games over their Clemson careers over four years. And this year, their defense, I, I get the ACC is weak, um, but this year putting up equally impressive numbers. We're going to see them tested this year, of course, for the first time probably all year against Ohio State and what Justin Fields is able to do. But at the same time, here's the thing that I find interesting about uh, Clemson not really playing anybody this year, not really playing anybody who's legitimized themselves this year. Uh, there was a team not too, too long ago that, that faced the same kind of scrutiny when they went to play in the then BCS National Championship game. And I think you're probably about to feel, you probably already sense where I'm going with this. Um, never had to make a play in the fourth quarter. The other team got into that game and said they wanted to make a play in the fourth quarter because they thought they had made mistakes, and that team engineered a big fourth quarter comeback and won the national championship. That team was my alma mater in 2013 against Auburn after steamrolling just about everybody in the ACC, including a Clemson team that everybody thought at the point was going to go to the national championship themselves. Um, and then getting into the national championship, falling behind Auburn, got into the fourth quarter as Auburn wanted, and then FSU ended up coming back. So I, I always pause when I think, huh, this team has not been tested. They've not been, uh, you know, they've not really had to go through a gauntlet yet. They might stumble. But then I've seen firsthand that it didn't really matter that one time. Um, so we'll see how this goes. We'll, we'll see how it goes. I don't think Trevor Lawrence has quite had the year uh, that he would have preferred, that Dabo Sweeney would have preferred. There's still something about this Clemson team. The eye test just doesn't quite add up. They just don't look quite as right. Um, and, and it wasn't as uh, clear as it was in that near loss at UNC. Um, but here's the thing. I, I, I like the fact that Ohio State's been battle tested. You mentioned the three teams they beat consecutively. Um, I like their playmakers on both sides. I thought Justin Fields really was a star straight out of high school. Um, didn't see much of him at Georgia, so he transferred, and he's done everything they needed him to do. Ryan Day is having one heck of a first year as a Buckeyes new head man. Um, and, and it's really, when you look at both teams being so sound on both sides of the ball, because with Oklahoma, the question was the defense, and at times you could question LSU's as well, which is why a lot of people are thinking shootout in Atlanta and question mark in Arizona is because both of these teams have proven over the years to be so fundamentally sound on both sides of the ball. So it could be the Ohio State defense stepping up. It could be youngsters on the Clemson defense stepping up. It could be one of the two younger quarterbacks. Maybe it's Trevor Lawrence asserting himself as the guy who led the Tigers to a national championship and shredded Alabama in the process. Or it could be Justin Fields coming out party. We don't know yet. 
Um, but I think that one's going to be really interesting. I think both defenses are going to make plays. It's going to be considerably lower scoring. And like you, I think it's going to be a fourth quarter game. Somebody's going to have to make a play. Flip a coin, it might be one of those things where who has the ball last is the team that ends up kicking that crucial field goal or scoring that crucial touchdown to win it. Um, so, your, your predictions for these two games? I'll take LSU over Oklahoma. Do you want to score or do you just want to win? Just, just a winner. I'll take LSU, and I actually do think Ohio State will beat Clemson. And uh, I really do think, by and large, looking at every team in the country, especially these four, the two unequivocal best teams that I think America deserves to see in the national championship. And it is razor thin, mind you, between Ohio State and Clemson. And I know I'm an ACC guy, and it's kind of against the brand to not say Clemson here. Um, I really have been impressed with Ohio State and the way they played against the teams they played. I give them the slight edge over the Tigers. Um, and, and those are the two right teams, I think, to see play for a national championship in uh, New Orleans. So I'm and that would be two undefeated you know, teams facing each other with somebody ending the season 15-0. and 0. It'll be impressive. It's going to be really impressive. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? We, we have three teams in the playoffs that are undefeated, and that's the first time we've seen something like this before. So you guys, whichever way you look at it, if you like Clemson because of their consistency, if you like Ohio State because they've also won a lot and they've played better teams, um, you've got three really, really good football programs that have done all of their respective conferences really proud, and you can make a legitimate claim for either one. Um, it, it's clear that this playoff, we're going to see a couple of teams really earn their trip to the national championship game this year, um, and it's going to be some hard-fought football. One, I think, like a lot of people, is going to be more of a shootout. The other one's going to be a little bit lower scoring, and it might come down to a crucial play at the end. I think LSU separates themselves from Oklahoma, and like I mentioned, I think uh, Ohio State and Clemson kind of grind it out into the fourth quarter, and somebody makes a play late. But it, this is going to be a, a fantastic weekend of college football, and I think the profile and the popularity of this game, especially at this level, is going to continue to grow. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I know that, that you'll be locked in um, because you always are, and I know that although you love these games and you love the way this weekend sets up, what you are really excited for is the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl and the Serve Pro First Responder Bowl. And let me find one more good one. Um, the Nova Home Loans Arizona Bowl. Those are your games of the weekend, right? Well, you know, the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, for obvious reasons, is, is my other game of the weekend. Yes. That's the one that FSU is playing in, yes. in against the, uh, <clears throat> the Fighting Terminators at Arizona State. So... Um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing that one, but yeah, I, I, I think I get the overarching uh, <laughs> the overarching point you're making is that we got a lot of these bowl games, and uh, you know we're getting some in the neighborhood of 80 or so D1 teams, and I know a lot of these kids work hard and they deserve to have something, but it is getting to the point where uh, it is getting a little odd when you get these random name bowls all over the landscape, and uh, you know they're kind of competing against the college football playoff or TV time and for audience draw, and they just, frankly, won't. Yes. Um, and, and, and so I think that's a conversation that needs to be had, you know. Maybe yeah. Maybe not in the number of bowl games, but also these bowl games are good for the local economies in these particular cities. 
you know, the Tony of the Tiger Sun Bowl is going to do great things for El Paso because, frankly, the University of Texas El Paso has had one of the, the one of the worst college football programs for not a very short amount of time. So they're actually going to be people that are going to that stadium, that are going to be staying in those hotels and eating in those restaurants. So there's a lot of things to look at, and I understand the uh, the notion that there's so many of these bowl games, and if there's a bunch of them, you know, the really special ones kind of feel less special. Um, but at the same time, I can also see where it's still special for these kids who worked hard really year-round, sacrificing their bodies just to get a chance to play in a championship-quality kind of game, even if it's not the highest quality like you might see in the playoffs. Um, but, yeah, I will be watching the Tony Tiger Sun Bowl. Rumor has it it's great. I'm not going to roll the R like he does. Um, but, you know, I'm also looking forward to, if I can just say, I think FSU did make the right hire with Mike Norvell, a young head coach that is really a star rising in the industry. I think he goes back to that pro-style offense that a lot of the kids in Tallahassee were recruited to play. Uh, he's going to have to hit the transfer portal for some O-linemen. There's still the secondary signing day in February uh, where he might be able to pick up some really nice O-linemen, but that's the point of concern. Can you protect your quarterback? Probably James Blackman moving forward. Uh, can you sustain a decent run game, especially with your stud running back, Cam Akers, declaring early for the NFL draft. And then, of course, defensively, uh, what can you do there? Up front, you know you're going to get some good pressure with Odell Higgins, who took over as an interim head coach before they hired Norvell, leading the way with the defensive line. Uh, secondary, he's been a bit of a question mark. Linebackers at times a bit of a question mark. So what do you do there uh, moving forward? That'll, those will be other questions that have to be answered um, in the weeks and months ahead. But I think the future is looking up for FSU. I think they did make the right hire with this one. Um, so hopefully, all due respect to El Paso and the more recent trips out to the Sun uh, Bowl. That is Sean Davison um, to preview uh, the college football playoff semifinals and championship game and to recap the President's Cup and some other thoughts on golf in 2019. Thank you, as always, Sean, for coming on Teeing It Up. Thanks as always, Jeremy. Happy holidays. You got it. Same to you, and uh, have a great day, everybody.